Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob. As always, I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. What's up, Chris? Not much, man. Been a crazy weekend in the world of sports, as usual. A rainy weekend over here in Ohio. I covered a uh, high school soccer tournament game last night, and it was pouring. But fortunately, the rain stopped as soon as I had to go onto the field to do my interviews. So thank you, whoever's controlling the rain up there. Very kind of you. I mean, obviously you can thank Hurricane Patricia. I think the whole nation is is drenched right now uh, from top to bottom. Uh, yeah, this weekend, a lot of stuff happened. Unfortunately, I, you know, I felt like last weekend I was the couch potato watching just tons of sports. This weekend, not so much, but I was keeping cl- close tabs on a couple games, particularly those American League Championship Series and NLCS games uh, leading into the World Series. That's going to be our main topic today. The World Series is set. We got the Royals repeating in the AL and the Mets making a return after 15 years to the post to the to the World Series. So we have an interesting matchup. Chris, what do you think about these two teams, their road to get here and the particular matchup? Well, first off, this is a matchup that nobody had. I think the Royals were probably the most disrespected defending American League champion that I can remember. And all they did was come back and have the American League's best record and win, defend their championship in pretty convincing fashion. You know, they struggled against Houston a bit. Houston had the 2-1 edge and had a chance to finish them off in Game 4. But the Royals stepped up one big, as we talked about last week on our Crazy Sports Week podcast. And then the Blue Jays, whose offense had carried them so far, kind of faded a bit in the ALCS. They did have that one game where they scored a ton of runs, but the Royals got to them early. They went up 3-1, and then they won in six, and that game six had its share of drama. I mean, you had the Blue Jays with a runner on third and nobody out, and Wade Davis, one of the best closers in the game, and I'm sure we're going to talk about him a little bit more later, uh, just closed the door on the Blue Jays. Ben Revere taking his frustration out on a water cooler. I saw that pitch. It was probably should have been a 3-1 count. Very questionable strike call. But still, you had three chances to bring a guy home from third to tie the game, and they couldn't do it. That's why they lost, not because of a questionable call on a, on a strike. And so hats off to Kansas City for getting back there. Going on the National League side, the Mets a little more similar situation uh, had an intense NLDS against the Dodgers, went to five games. They took on the two-headed monster of Grinke and Kershaw and won. They had their own three-headed monster, as we've mentioned before, which I'm sure we'll talk about as this podcast goes on. Then they get to the NLCS, and they laid the hammer down on the Chicago Cubs, including Jake Arrieta. They swept them four games, wasn't really close, So they won the NLCS in very convincing fashion. A little more drama between the Jays and the Royals, but not quite as much because Kansas City still went up 3-1. So a pretty straightforward championship round. But Bob, I think that these two teams, it's an odd matchup on paper, to tell you the truth. Because you look at them, you, you look at the Royals, and nothing really jumps out at you when you look at their numbers, save for their bullpen. 
you look at the Mets and you see a couple guys just pop right away. I mean, Daniel Murphy's postseason, Johannes Cespedes' regular season, and that rotation. So when you look at these two teams on paper, it's a weird matchup. But the Royals are a team that has transcended what they've looked like on paper all year long. And I, I, I can't, I, I think they're probably going to do it again and step up. And I think it's going to be a very, very fun World Series to watch. Yeah, definitely. I- you know, I can't think of a more unlikely American League heavyweight team than the Kansas City Royals. I mean, Alcides Escobar won the ALCS MVP without hitting a home run and only driving in five RBIs. I mean, he he hit four. He had four games where he, as the leadoff hitter, got a base hit, and that was a ALCS record. I guess he had a four seventy eight batting average and uh, fifteen total bases. But that is just kind of what the Royals lineup is they're not a typical slugging lineup and they're not really uh your typical small ball lineup they just they swing and they swing and when the ball gets put in play they they make things happen it's a very interesting offense for the Royals and I think that is their strongest suit coming into this game is that they don't rely on the long ball they just kind of make things happen as a lineup one to nine and when you're going up against what looks like you said a three-headed monster. I'm throwing Steven Matz into there because he pitched a really good game four against the Chicago Cubs. This is a really good New York Mets starting lineup in the NLCS, a 216 ERA, only gave up 15 hits combined in 25 innings, only walked six in four games and struck out 29. I mean, this is a Mets rotation that is could be one for the ages if they seal the deal and win this World Series. As a team, the Mets had a 281 ERA in, in uh, all nine of their postseason games. So the Mets pitched the light out of the ball. They just get timely hitting from really Daniel Murphy, and that's about it. Uh, the Mets, if you looked at those scores against the Cubs, I think they scored less than four runs in every game except for game four. So it, it's going to be a very interesting matchup. I mean – the Cubs had the ace in Jake Arrieta, but I would say that the Mets had the aces in, in the four guys that they threw out there. So, yeah, it's going to be one of those classic things of what gives the the rotation or this Kansas City Royals lineup that seems to just make plays happen, steals bases in a timely fashion and gets key hits when they need it. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see what's going to give. Yeah, certainly. And I agree. That is the matchup of the postseason this three-slash-four-headed monster the Mets have in Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, and now Mats versus this very opportunistic offense of the Kansas City Royals. Put this in perspective, looking at their regular season pitching numbers, Noah Syndergaard is the only, only one Kansas City pitcher, that's Chris Young, has an ERA lower than any of the Mets' four pitchers okay so of the four of the five highest era or lowest eras belong to the new york mets two of them under three steven Matz is also under three but he had six starts so a lot of firepower in that rotation for the new york mets and that's certainly the reason why they're in the world series right now Compare that to the Royals rotation. Cueto has the pedigree of an ace, but he has not pitched like an ace in a while. 
Volquez, Ventura, Young, solid guys, but not guys that you're really, really scared of. The Mets have guys that can really shut you down. The Royals have guys that can pitch solid. But I feel like if the Royals offense isn't producing, they're probably not going to win this World Series. And producing at a high level, obviously you need to score runs to win any game. But the Royals offense needs to carry them a little bit. But on the on the flip side, you've got a Mets offense that really doesn't have much outside of Murphy and Cespedes, who Cespedes has struggled in the postseason. He's got a shoulder injury that he's dealing yeah, with. Yeah, so, I mean, it, that certainly has hurt them that their big bat, their big trade deadline acquisition, who hit 35 home runs in both leagues with the Tigers and Mets uh, combined, 105 RBIs, 101 runs, 291 average. I mean, he's the guy that got at the trade deadline and who I would vote for National League MVP because he changed the complexion of the Mets from day one when he got there, turned that offense in from one of the worst in the in, in the National League and even the majors to one that was serviceable enough to get to the postseason as they did climbing back and winning that division from the heavily favored Nationals. So... It's a, it's a very interesting matchup. It's a very contrarian matchup. You've got, you know, a, a opportunistic offense versus a lights-out pitching staff. You have a shaky offense versus a shaky pitching staff. And it's just a matter of which weakness is going to step up and which strength is going to give. Yeah, definitely. You know, that Royals pitching staff, they show – they have flashes of being dominant aces. I'd say Volquez, Ventura, and Cueto have all shown those flashes throughout the year. Uh, it's just the consistency. And so when you're in the World Series, you're not really going to rely on that too much. But, you know, they could certainly come out and, and deliver a, a seven-game shutout appearance. Like, that is totally in their capability. And if that happens, it's I think it's hard for the Mets to realistically win these games. Uh, you know, the Mets are the classic postseason run team. They, they get home runs in a timely fashion, and they have a, a rotation that just shuts the opposition down. And, you know, you hit those home runs and then the more pressures on the other offense facing these aces, it's it's really hard. The Royals do strike out a lot, especially when facing fastballs. Uh, 8.55 times per nine innings is the stat uh, when facing hard throwing pitch starting pitching. And they are really good at hitting uh, breaking balls. They have a 251 batting average in the postseason against non-fastballs. Every other playoff team hits about 188. So... I don't know. I don't know what to interpret with that stat. It could go either way, really. I mean, that that could you could say that the Royals are going to just wait for those breaking balls from these aces and get their hits, or you could say that the Mets staff is going to overpower the this this Royals lineup that really isn't imposing one on one, but one through nine is very good. So you're 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 totally right. It's what's going to give. Uh, who, who do you think is the X factor for each team? Well, you got to look at Daniel Murphy, who's been the X factor this entire postseason. NLCS MVP hit 14 home runs in the regular season. He's hit seven in the postseason. That's nine games. So he's on a tear of his career. Certainly has been the X factor for the Mets all postseason long and probably is after that pitching staff, the biggest reason they're in the World Series right now. So you look at him on the Mets side, he's an easy one to jump out that jumps out at you. The Royals, I think, are a team of X factors, if that makes sense. I mean, and you mentioned it, like one through nine, nobody jumps out at you other than Lorenzo Kane. I think Lorenzo Kane, 
he's a little bit he's probably a cut above the rest yeah he's got that five tool right stuff going for him so but other than that i mean they have a team of guys who just in timely fashion can step up they don't have anyone who's hitting like 30 home runs but in the regular season they had three guys who hit 20 home runs and that would be kendrick morales mike moustakis and salvador perez you know, they have a couple other guys who are flirting with 20 home runs. Eric Hosmer had 18. Lorenzo Cain had 16. They have a lot of guys who, and they don't rely on the long ball, but they do have a lot of guys who can hit the long ball and, and, and are pretty consistent. You know, they don't have a lot of guys who are hitting 300, but they have guys who are at 297, 290, 284. Ben Zobrist is Mr. X Factor. He can play like 20 positions, and he's still a solid bat in the lineup. So I feel like. If you're going to look at an X-Factor for the Royals, you look at the rotation. Can Johnny Cueto or Edison Volquez pitch like an ace for two games? Both of them have been aces in the past. In fact, Cueto is the ace of this staff, technically. Both of them have been the number one for other teams. Volquez with the Reds and Cueto also with the Reds. They used to pitch together. That's kind of another storyline there. But you look at those guys as... Stepping up and delivering a pair of shutdown starts. If they can do that, I think the Royals win the World Series. I definitely agree with you on the Royals side. I think it's somebody in that rotation. Volquez, Ventura, Cueto. Like I said, we've seen flashes of them. Like you said, they'd need one of of those guys to put in two starts, two dominant starts in the World Series. Otherwise, it's going to be a long... They're gonna that offense is gonna have to do a lot of work on the other side of the ball. Uh, for the Mets, I think I'm going with Met Harvey, particularly with the forearm that he's been dealing with. It was inflamed at the end of the NLCS. I'm surprised that they named him their game one starter. I thought they would give him a little bit more time to make sure that forearm's okay. Uh, if if he comes out and doesn't give a quality start for the Mets, I mean that's you never nobody wants to go down a one. And for the Mets who seem to be riding an incredible amount of momentum where we've been waiting for this Mets run to kind of derail itself for, I mean, four months probably at this point. So you'd you'd never want to have something questionable like that happen at the start and then say that forearm again inflames itself after game one. Is he going to be able to go again later in the postseason? And that kind of shakes up your rotation. So hopefully he'll be healthy and he will be able to give a quality start. And that's why I'm naming him the X factor. I, I thought it was really interesting that he was named that game one starter. I thought they were going to go with Cindergard. Yeah, that is kind of interesting with the injury because if you go someone else and then you line up your rotation so that you're not relying on Harvey to pitch twice, it might be a little bit better. But again, I don't know. I mean, they obviously know more about his injury than we do. So perhaps he's shown enough signs that, the forearm is recovered to the point that he can start game one. Because remember, they wrapped up their series in four games. They've had a little more rest than the Royals. He hasn't had to pitch for a while. So I, I, that 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 certainly, I, I certainly believe that the Mets are doing their due diligence with him, or at least I hope they are. They should be because he's a big part of their future. But I think with the extra rest, possibly gave him enough of uh, healing time to make that game one start. 
Yeah. Scott Boris is probably like having a heart attack every day when he reads about Harvey. <laughs> he, he wanted him to stop pitching in August, I think. <laughs> probably. But, you know, it's the World Series time. You can't be thinking about the business side of things. I understand that that's obviously important. I'm not trying to discount it. But when you're playing for a championship, you got to be all systems go. And I certainly think that everyone on the Mets and the Royals are extremely hungry to win what would be a career-defining series for anyone on the roster. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, where do you want to go from here? Do you want to make a pick, or do you want to talk about the two losers first? Well, first off, let's go with uh, the closers. I mean, we didn't mention Wade Davis sure. and Familia, who have been very strong. Uh, Familia, 43 out of 48 in save attempts, uh, 80, 86 Ks and 78 innings pitch, and then Wade Davis has just been nasty. He was their setup man, so what does that tell you about the Kansas City bullpen? It's pretty darn good. But Davis, an 8-1 record, 094 ERA, 17 saves in the regular season, and he's been just unhittable in the playoffs. So I think whoever has the lead late is more than likely going to win the game with these two guys anchoring things down. And don't be surprised if you see them making a few appearances in the eighth inning to get multiple out saves because that's generally how things go in the World Series. You throw your best guy as often as possible and shut them down. So it could be the, the bullpens are pretty solid. I would say Kansas City has a deeper bullpen. The Mets don't have as strong of a bridge to get to Familia, but once they get there, he's as lights out as they come. Yeah, definitely. I think the Mets with, with the four guys in their rotation, they, they do have the advantage. They could put one of those aces in the bullpen later in the in the world series and, and pitch them out of the bullpen so they would add an arm that way familia zero era eight eight appearances in the postseason five saves uh six strikeouts wade davis even better i mean uh five five appearances three saves zero era and 10 strikeouts in just 6.2 innings i i have to say it's a wash in terms of closing I think both of those guys are locked down. I would have to give a little bit more credit to Wade Davis just because he's older, he has more experience, and he's your typical strikeout closer. Uh, but, yeah, if it gets to the ninth inning with the lead, uh, neither of these two teams are known to to blow saves or or to really collapse in the end. Uh, you don't get to the World Series by choking in, in the end of game. So I, I really have to give it a wash. But, yeah, those guys are definitely the re- part of the re- – a big reason why these guys are playing the World Series for sure. And Wade Davis had a huge save against Toronto. You got a runner on third with nobody out in the ninth inning. He comes back. I think they got two on uh, ultimately with nobody out. He comes back and gets three straight outs. I believe two of them were strikeouts. Very, very clutch performance from Wade Davis in that game six. I did want to bring up one more thing. Going back to our MLB trade deadline recap podcast, the two of the teams we branded as winners were the Royals and the Mets, and they're both in the World Series. But not just that, we also said the Blue Jays were big winners, getting Tulowitzki, Revere, and Price. And you and I were on the same page. When you have a shot at going for a title, you throw the chips in. All three of those teams did it, and the Blue Jays fell short, but they got to the ALCS and lost to another team that threw all the chips in. So not both of them obviously couldn't win the American League. The Mets put their chips in, went out and addressed their offense. They knew they had a weakness, and they're in the World Series. So a lot of the buyers at the trade deadline were rewarded this year with strong postseason runs. And let's also not forget the Chicago Cubs late in August 
to the dismay of my American League-only fantasy team, got Austin Jackson from the Seattle Mariners. So all four of those teams made a move to shore up their rosters, the first three making some little more significant moves than the Cubs did, but it all paid off this year. So a memo to contending teams, if you have a shot at it, put the chips in and try to get that championship. It's paying off for all it paid off for all three of those teams this year, and obviously only one can come away with the title, but a trip to the World Series is still just as very exciting for the fan base. Yeah, definitely. Uh absolutely. I think those three teams were were definitely the winners. I just went back and looked at my uh, my blog of the worst off-season moves in uh, the MLB off-season and, and the Cubs are number 1 <laughs> with Adam John Lester. But I think I got all the other ones pretty good. But yeah, I I am all for teams going all in to go on a postseason run. If you're there, if you are in contention and you you have the pieces, go all in and do it because I I think that MLB is is uh, probably the hardest to 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 repeat on a year by year basis. I mean, you can have a really good team for four or five years, but you know if something goes wrong and it's a really long season and you have to take advantage of when you are in control uh, at that moment and, and, and go all in and get the pieces. So I, I commend all three of the teams that you mentioned and, and the Cubs are up and coming. So they didn't want to give up a lot of their prospects that are, are coming to the ML coming to the big leagues now. So I also commend them for holding Pat and for still making a run into the in, late into the postseason. Yeah. And speaking of the Cubs, it's a pretty good transition. The Cubs and the Blue Jays, Cubs in particular have a very bright future, even though they lost in the National League Championship Series. I mean, you look at all the prospects they have. They have a nasty ace. They have a very strong offense. Look, we we were a little critical, me in particular, of Theo Epstein in the preseason, but all the prospects arrived. They stepped up. Everything went right for the Cubs, and it looks like they're in place to have a strong foundation for the next five years given how many of these guys are still under team control. So if you're a Cubs fan, there's a big reason to be excited for baseball for the next few years. And you just, you know, hope nothing goes wrong with any of these guys. It's obviously a lot goes into winning a world championship. You know, it takes so much more than just having a lot of talent. You have to have some lucky breaks. You have to avoid the injuries. But at least the Cubs Cubs fans can feel excited about Having a team that's probably going to be fun to watch for the next five years. On the Blue Jays' side, a few more questions. They lose a lot of their rotation, David Price and Marco Estrada, to right off the top of my head. but And, and they might not pick up R.A. Dickey's option, and Mark Burley might retire. So I believe those are their top four pitchers. So what's next for the Blue Jays is a little more questionable, even though their offense is probably going to come back mostly intact. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the Blue Jays, I mean, that rotation short of David Price was not exactly inspiring. So I don't think that that is going to be much of a, a deal breaker for them. They still have that lights out, smash mouth offense on the other side. So I think they will be able to rebuild that relatively quickly. The Blue Jays have a large fan base that they can tap into we saw how crazy those fans were i think that they are going to approach this next offseason and try and increase their payroll they're at 137 million in 2015 i think they could open up their checkbooks uh it's a huge market up in canada and toronto and i think that 
this run late into the postseason, which, you know, we've been waiting for the Blue Jays to make a postseason run for a couple of years now with that offense. I think now that they're doing it, they can go out and, and kind of rebuild that rotation relatively quickly. I would like to see David Price stay there just because I like seeing David Price in the postseason. I think he was a really good fit for them, but I would understand if they let him walk because of the contract he's going to command. On the other side for the Cubs, I mean, you're right. They don't have a lot of decisions to make. Jake Arrieta is entering arbitration, so I would be very interested to see what kind of contract he comes out with. Uh, he had the greatest second half in MLB history for a starting pitcher. He was almost untouchable up until that NLCS for about four months. So, you know, what what kind of contract is he going to get? And then Dexter Fowler is also an unrestricted free agent who statistically isn't a big part of that Cubs offense, but he, Joe Madden was really in love with him and said that their offense went with him. If he got on base, the offense started clicking. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with their leadoff man. The Cubs are at a payroll of $120 million in 2015. I have to imagine that they're going to open up that checkbook this offseason. They're going to be big spenders because they have a huge market, are going to go all in. You saw them go all in, start to go all in with John Lester in that huge deal. I could see them adding a, even another ace and, and really establishing themselves as a dominant force in the NL for uh, the next couple of years. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if they were active in free agent. If both teams were active in free agency, you got a couple other aces like Zach Grinke, who's expected to opt out. Scott Casimir could be a very strong value option for a lot of teams. He's an underrated pitcher, lefty. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see, especially those two teams, what they do in the offseason to maybe take the next step and go get to the World Series. But you got to think the future is pretty bright for both of them. Uh, even though there's some other talent that didn't qualify for that championship round, like the Cardinals, like the Astros, like... You know, some of these other teams that are very strong. So it's it's never a given that you're going to get back to where you were, but you got to think that the future is pretty strong for both the Cubs and the Blue Jays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, MLB, I think, has a, a, a great era of not having dominant teams on the top. I wouldn't say that there's parity just because of the payroll and, and the no limits on the salaries, but there are a ton of teams that can make a run in any given year. But these four teams that we finished with definitely have a really bright future, and I could easily see them making runs late into the postseason for the next couple of years for sure. I think that was one unintended benefit of the fifth postseason spot or the second wild card. You see a lot more teams in the race, and the trade deadline historically used to just be buyers and sellers, and a lot of these smaller market teams would sell early. I think you're seeing a lot more of them hold on a little bit later because there is more of a shot. I mean, a lot of teams weren't eliminated to the last week of the of, of the regular season, which means a lot of these teams aren't thinking sell, sell, sell every year. And you're starting to see them build up a core of prospects, core of, uh, of players. And I think that that kind of mentality is starting to trickle over into some of the other teams as well. The Yankees always bought... And this year they didn't buy that heavily. So I think you're starting to see some of the traditional buyers maybe retool what works as building a long-term model for success in this new era of baseball. And it's refreshing for the fans because nobody likes the buyers. Nobody likes the teams that spend $240 million in payroll. Nobody likes those kind of teams. 
uh, they're easy to cheer against. So I think it is refreshing for the broad scale of baseball fans to see some of these teams like Kansas City, like Toronto, like Houston, even Texas to a degree, uh, consistently in the postseason. Well, Houston not, but making a run in the postseason. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point. I think a long time ago, you would make a trade, and if you if you trade for minor league players, nobody would really hear about it for a really long time, and you'd have to do some research to figure, to remember who they traded for. I think now we remember everybody that is traded, and it's we we hold that up to the general managers, and we we harp upon that if it, if if a big player is traded for prospects that bust, and then we look at the the treasure trove that a general manager trades one player for. It's it turns out to be three starters, and two of them are all stars or something like that. I think we've really seen more reporting of that and more knowledge just from the fan base. So I think both sides are a lot more hesitant to trade up that young talent because they they will be killed if they give up the next star. And so I think just in the age of over-reporting, general managers are, are a lot more careful about who they're trading and what they're giving up. Yeah, it's not just the over-reporting. It's the internet and everything. I mean, you got Twitter. You've got all these super fans who don't forget a lot of things. So... Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot more information out there. There's a lot more to hold general managers accountable for. And it's a new era, but I like this kind of era of baseball. I like it when the playing field is a little more level and you can't just buy your way to a championship. You actually have to run a strong organization. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so who do you got in this World Series? Oh, man, I've been picking against the Royals all year long. And... I'm going to do it again. I'm going to pick the Mets. <laughs> I, I'm the same way. I am I feel obligated to pick the Royals, but um, I think this is going to be a seven-game series. First off, I think both these teams are not dominant enough to end it quickly. I just think that the Mets have better pitching, and I think that at the end of the day is what wins the World Series. They have four guys that can go deep into a start. I have to go with the Mets. I think it's going to be a tense, great series to watch. I think a lot of plays are going to be made, a lot of things to talk about when we talk about the end of the World Series, but I think the Mets are going to come out on top in seven games. Yeah, I do think it's going to be a deep series, either six or, or probably seven games. I think it's going to be a close series. I think there's going to be a lot of nip-tuck, intense games. If you are a fan who likes to see a ton of home runs, this probably isn't going to be the World Series for you. It's going to be more of a pitcher's kind of World Series, I envision it. A lot of probably under five run games. So it's going to be, I think, a very nip-tuck, intense series. But for me, that's what baseball is all about. I think that those kind of games are just fantastic to watch when the stakes are the highest. And I think it's going to be a fun series to watch, but I agree with you. I think pitching ultimately wins out, and the Mets have a better rotation. But you know what? The Royals have proved this wrong all year long. They're probably going to do it again. So pick in the Mets, but don't be shocked if the Royals just say whatever. Yeah, because they are avid listeners of what are you talking about? We have been motivating them all year. I, I expect yeah. a shout-out if they win the World Series. Yeah, I mean, we're invited to the locker room for the champagne shower. That would be kind of sweet. Oh, yeah. It's it's really it's a lot more uncomfortable than you would think. It's really sticky. Well, yeah, but and also the corks and everything, they got to wear goggles because those things fly everywhere. They fire off like 20 of them. 
That's true. That you could buy ones without the corks, though. I think. Yeah, but that's not as fun. Kind of like, yeah, you're right. They're probably you know it's probably like Dom that they're spraying. I up. will say this, and not to you know what, I feel like the champagne celebration is overdone. You know, you win the wild. Nowadays, you win the yeah, wild card nowadays, game. No, that's not champagne worthy. I'm sorry. I mean, they do it after every series. They do it when they clinch a playoff spot. They do it when they clinch the wild card, the division. They do it when they win the wild card game. They do it when they win the NLDS, and then they do it like they do it like five celebrations. I mean, no, I feel like you do one when you get to the playoffs, and you do one when you get to the World Series. That's it. Not, none of this winning the wild card game and celebrating with champagne. No. No. Sorry. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's over an over-celebration. You could celebrate, just don't don't pop the champagne until you have something more substantial to celebrate. If I, if I owned a team, I would have two rules. One, I would not hang any banner that wasn't a league championship or a championship. So, no division title banners, no wild card appearances banners. And two, you get a champagne for making the playoffs, and you get a champagne for getting to the World Series and winning the World Series. That's it. The standards would be high in my organization. <laughs> yeah, I, I think. I mean, I think it's the players that organize the champagne showers. Don't the Colts have a AFC runner-up? That is the banner. weakest banner in all of sports. <laughs> That is the weakest banner in all of sports. I'm sorry. Oh, that is man. the weakest banner in all of sports. And you're remi- you're reminding your fans of getting shellacked. Exactly. <laughs> the Patriots. And here's the thing, though. Yeah, the players organized that champagne thing, but they need champagne to do it. If the owner takes away all the champagne, they can't exactly do a champagne celebration. So no, no champagne celebration until you get to the World Series. All right. I'm waiting for you to buy that team. Yeah, I got about a uh, what. $950 million to go or something like that. No, even more than that. So it's not going to be for a while. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it, it's not all about baseball in this podcast. We did have a what looked like a lackluster week of college football going into it. Certainly delivered some entertaining games. The one that jumps out at me right off the bat are the Utah Utes, a team that I was – pulling for a little bit because I like the little guy. I like the fact that they come into the Pac-12 and can potentially win it. But they had a dose of reality against the Trojans this weekend. 42-24, to and the final might not even have been that close. Bob, this is the first real major shakeup to the playoffs in a few weeks now. The last couple weeks, it's been looking like, you know, Clemson and the two Big 12 teams in Utah and Ohio State. Now the guard has changed a little bit. I mean, it's been about a three-week run for this these teams. What would you think of that? You know, I, I can't say it. I kind of suspected that this was going to happen, uh, this game in particular. You know, I... In our college football preview, I had USC going in the playoff. I had them win the Pac-12. I thought they were one of the better teams. This is a team that is as talented as any other team in college football. Due, due to what happened, I have to put most of the blame on Steve Sarkeesian and what he was going through. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to call him out for anything that he's going through, but 
when a coach is going through something like a, a public addiction like that, and you're trying to be a head coach of a big time football team, it has to impact the team. And I, I have to put some of the blame on, on for those two, for those three losses that USC went through. But this is still a really good team, and this I had to, I have to think that this is a trap game for Utah. Uh, it it doesn't surprise me all that much. Utah still has to play a lot of good teams. They have to go to Arizona. They have to play UCLA. I mean. Yes, Utah was definitely deserving of their ranking and their position, but uh, it it didn't really surprise me that USC came out on top. It was a home game. It was a night game. They're two weeks removed from Steve Sarkeesian leaving. So, yeah, this is definitely a trap game for Utah, and the results aren't surprising. I I think the result of Utah losing isn't surprising. It was on the road against a really talented team that has been underachieving. I think the margin of the result was surprising. To dominate the number three team in the country, who's looked quite dominant themselves, 42-24, to 24, is an eye-opener for me. I mean, I thought if USC had won, it would be a close game. It's surprising to see Utah lay such an egg, even if it was a trap game. And so I think that's the surprising element for me, was not that they lost, but how they lost, that they weren't ever really in the game yeah that's definitely true I, I i forget the name of the usc linebacker but he had three interceptions of, of the utah quarterback yeah uh, yeah it was you're, you're definitely right even the score that that it ended in i think is a little closer than really what that game was usc went up 14-0 to start it off and i think they they really never looked back uh the pac-12 so far all the ranked teams have laid an egg a seriously bad game it's not that they just lost a close one they've been embarrassed in certain situations even Stanford who is now the top team in the Pac-12 I mean that opening week against Northwestern I think still leaves a bad taste in in some voters mouths because they looked so bad so the Pac-12 you were the one that predicted it in our preview podcast but they might be looking at a, a whole conference that has two lost teams, and I'm not sure if that's going to be enough to get into the into the playoff. No, I mean, it's shifting to Stanford. Well, Utah's not out yet. That one loss is a loss that they can absorb at this point in the season and still come back if they were to win out and beat Stanford in the championship game. Stanford has to win out, and Utah has to win out. If those two meet in the title game as two one-loss teams, I could see the winner of that getting in because there's going to be more attrition. You know, LSU is going to play Alabama. The Big Ten is going to sort itself out. The Big 12 is going to play each other. There could be, like, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State could bubble up. But a lot of things are going to sort themselves out, and we're going to get to another upset here in a minute, too, another team uh, lost in dramatic fashion. But I don't think the Pac-12 is out yet, but this certainly hurts their chances. But you're right about Stanford. Losing to Northwestern, it was a quote-unquote close game, 16-6, to but it was an ugly game. Stanford did not look impressive. You're right about that. And so I think that Stanford could still recover. They're 10th in the nation. They're going to move up with the two upsets. And if them and Utah are in the Pac-12 championship game with only one loss, that, I think, will push them into the playoff round because there's going to be more attrition in the top 10. These teams are going to move out of each other's way. But you're right. The margin of of error is paper thin for the Pac-12 now. These teams cannot sustain another loss. I don't think there's going to be enough attrition to push a two-loss team into the playoff field Maybe. I mean, it would have to get really, really bloody, but I, I think odds are against 
a two-loss team qualifying for the four-team field at this point based on how many games are left and how many teams are still undefeated. Yeah, definitely. I think Stanford uh, is in strong control of that North division, but that South division with Utah on top, right below it, you have UCLA, Arizona State, and USC all at two and two. So if Utah drops another game, you're going to have a huge tie break at the end of the year. So that's going to be very interesting in the Pac-12. But you alluded to another upset, a top 10 team, number nine, Florida State, playing against Georgia Tech. Late in the game, Florida State is tied 16-16, going to kick the game-winning field goal. Georgia Tech blocks it, not only blocks it, recovers the fumble, runs it all the way back for a game-winning walk-off touchdown. Chris, this is the best special teams walk-off play I've seen in a week. Yeah, I know. I mean, talk about the... Special teams have been a huge factor in this college football season. You had the two Michigan teams that you alluded to in their walk-off muffed punt. or I don't even think you can call it a muffed punt. It was kind of like a interception punt. The guy tried to throw Either way, Florida State kicker, I don't believe, had missed a field goal. I think he had some sort of streak. Of- yeah, he's the he's, he's the he's one of the most historic best kickers in college football, I think has tons of ACC records, hasn't missed since a freshman, I believe. Yeah, and then they lose on a walk-off blocked kick. You feel for the kid because most of the times a blocked kick isn't the kicker's fault, it's the protection's fault. But, man, I mean, what a terrible way to lose if you're Florida State. And that really puts a monkey wrench in the ACC because now, I mean, Clemson versus Florida State is still going to be a very big game because Florida State could keep Clemson out of the ACC title game if it wins that, potentially. But it's not going to have the cachet as it would have if they were both undefeated. And Florida State, with that loss, they were only ninth in the nation. They are going to drop. That's a tough loss to absorb at this point in the season. Their margin for error is paper thin. And if they were to win out and get to the ACC title game, it might actually shut the ACC out of the college football playoffs because I don't know if they'd be an impressive enough one-loss team to get into the postseason field. Still have to see how everything plays out, but that is a huge loss for Florida State. They're certainly going to drop a few spots in the rankings, probably hover around that 15 area, I would think, if they they probably drop around the 15 range, maybe out just outside the top 15. But that's a tough loss to take at this point in the season. No, yeah, definitely. And they only have two weeks to rebound before they have to go in to Clemson and face them, who look like the the best team in the ACC. Uh, it couldn't have happened at a more opposed time because Clemson absolutely demolished Miami, probably put the nail in the coffin for for Golson, uh, the head coach there. Uh, so yeah, Clemson looks to be in control. They don't have to face the other two currently ranked ACC teams in Duke and Pittsburgh. Those two teams have to face off there in the other division. So that could be uh, a good resume for Clemson to beat a ranked Florida State team who, yes, isn't in the top 10 anymore, but they'll still be ranked, and then to face off against one of those ranked teams in the ACC title game. I think the road is clear for Clemson to get to the college football playoff. If they get through Florida State, they have games against North Carolina State, Syracuse, Wake Forest, and South Carolina to round off that schedule. None of those guys uh, jump out at me as opponents or really trap games. I mean, South Carolina would be, but USC is going through a, a really bad year. I don't think they would are going to pose much of a threat. So Clemson's in the driver's seat. If they can get through that Florida state matchup, uh, I think 
their way to the college playoff is very clear. Well, yeah, I think if any of these teams finishes the year undefeated, they will be in the college football playoff. So, yeah, Clemson still complete control of their own destiny. You just look at the top six, you know, Clemson, LSU, and Ohio State with Utah losing, now TCU, Baylor, those four teams all control their own destiny, and Michigan State because they would knock off Ohio State and take that spot. So all seven teams that are undefeated in that top seven control their own destiny uh, and would, I would think, if all if four, at most only four of those teams are going to go undefeated. So there's your college football playoff right now. Those are the teams that if they went out, they're in without a doubt. You maybe could make an argument for, oddly enough, Iowa, but I think they'd be the weakest 13-0 team ever. It would be interesting to see if Iowa's 13-0, how they evaluate them. And Oklahoma State, because they would have to beat Oklahoma, TCU, and Baylor to get there. I think if they went out, they also would control their own destiny and leapfrog a lot of these teams as a very impressive 12-0 team. Because remember, the Big 12 doesn't play a championship game. But it's funny you should have mentioned Duke. Duke and Arkansas have something in common. They both won in quadruple overtime. That is, first off, insane. Duke beating Virginia Tech and Arkansas beating Auburn. Bob, were you able to watch either of these games? I unfortunately was not. I, I saw a little bit of Auburn versus Arkansas. It surprised me that Arkansas was able to score 56 points in a football game. They're not known for being an offensively dominant team. Granted, four of those scores came in, in an overtime where you're at the 25-yard line, so it's really easy to score. But when you're facing against an Auburn defense that is like water, uh, it, it's really easy. Uh, Auburn cannot stop anything, particularly if you are a power run game. They're the exact opposite of what Alabama is. You can just run right down the middle of them, and they really offer no opposition. So it doesn't surprise me that Arkansas is able to run down their throats. Uh, it, it does surprise me, though, that they were able to put up that many points. Uh, it's always fun when a, a game goes into overtime and, and you have a lot of back and forth quadruple overtime is a little bit crazy somebody has to make a stop it gets a little out of control and it gets that 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 far into it um yeah it, it's fun to watch but i'm, I'm just kind of like come on let's let's end this game now. see i hate i don't like college football's overtime i like the nfl's overtime the one possession have to score a touchdown walk off after that it's sudden death i like that because it's still special teams and defense still play into it. When you have to guard a 25-yard field, that's really tough. I mean, you're asking a defense to make goal line stands. I like the NFL's version because all facets of football come into play realistically throughout the overtime. I would hope, I wish college football would adapt that form of overtime because I think it's a better product than the college football each possession at the 25-yard line. Yeah, I think the the college football overtime is a little bit more superficial. You you guarantee points in scoring. It just kind of you worked for four quarters to get to this point, and then the game completely changes to a to an offensive chess match, really. And it's not it's not the game of field position or, or plays on all facets of the side, like you said. So, and I think it inflates a lot of stats. I mean, the Arkansas running back had one touchdown through four quarters. He finishes the game with four touchdown scores. Yeah, that I disagree yeah, with too. These overtime stats should not count. They're not. They're not true touchdowns, in my opinion. Yeah, they, they really aren't. I mean, when you start at the twenty-five yard line, one play is is a touchdown. You know, it's it's very easy to to, 
to beef up your stats. So I guess that's a strategy for winning fantasy college football if you play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I couldn't imagine playing fantasy college football because I would draft, I would draft like everyone on Toledo or Boise State or Houston because they're going to beat up on a bunch of bad teams. So I, I would have to play Power 5 fantasy college football. But even then there, I mean... That would just be a headache some weeks when you have Alabama facing North, South, East, Western. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going up against every guy in Alabama. <laughs> I'm going to lose by a million. Yeah, I don't I don't really know how it works, and I really don't care to find out because it doesn't sound all that interesting to me or that much of a strategy. But yeah, going to the SEC, we had a couple of uh, SEC teams trying to prove themselves against contenders. But Mississippi dispatched Texas A&M. Even though Texas A&M was higher ranked, A&M had just lost to Alabama bad. I think it's safe to say A&M isn't in the class of the upper echelon of the SEC after those two losses. And Tennessee losing late again. I think it's like the third time they've lost in the fourth quarter to Alabama, 19-14. A pretty close nip-tuck game from what I was able to watch. I, I you know, Like I said, I was covering a soccer game last night, so I couldn't watch a lot of college football. But... It looked like a pretty fun, entertaining game. Yeah, it was. Um, it started off fun. I mean, they both scored touchdowns in the first quarter. Tennessee, I think the stat was they, they gained 122 yards in their first two drives. They gained about 150 for the rest of the game against Alabama. It, it had the makings of that uh, Tennessee-Oklahoma game where Tennessee just came out, scored twice really quickly. And then really you could have walked away for a couple quarters and came back in the fourth quarter which is when Tennessee scored another touchdown and Alabama scored nine points. So yeah, it was a fun game. I think it was a fun highlight game, like a really fun game to catch up on at the end and see, see what happened. But uh, in between it, it wasn't all that fun. Derek Henry scored that game winning touchdown with just two twenty four left in the fourth quarter. Have to feel bad for Tennessee, but you also have to kind of feel good. Uh, it's been a disappointing year for them. They start off ranked number 25. A lot of guys, including myself, were predicting that Tennessee was going to kind of announce itself and, and, and have a really good season. Hasn't fallen that way for them, but they have shown that they can stay in a game and take a lead against top opposition they did against Alabama, against Oklahoma. So the future's bright for them, maybe just another year away. If they don't deliver next year, because now they do have a reputation of dropping leads and dropping big games, they don't start finishing next year. I think uh, Butch Jones is going to be in a lot of trouble because he did cost Tennessee at least one game this year in his coaching. Yeah, certainly. I mean, anytime you have that kind of expectations, you can understand them falling short this year. But next year, there's going to be the expectation that they make a run at a double-digit win season those are high expectations, but they do have the talent to do it, and, and they have been close against some of these really good teams. So, and, and, the SEC, and the SEC East is there for the taking. I mean, it's not like anyone's running away with that division um, consistently. So, yeah, I think next year would be uh, – the, the expectations will be there in full force next year. Yeah, certainly. And on Alabama's side, I think if Jay Coker can't do anything offensively, they got to rely on Derrick Henry and get him going. And if you are able to stop that run game, Alabama is certainly, you'll definitely have a chance to put up more points than Alabama. Their defense is still really sound, can stop any any team's run game really easily. 
it's just that Alabama offense is not very reliable. The only reliable part is Derrick Henry, but I think he is relatively easy to key in on and stop. Jake Coker needs to make plays for Alabama to make a playoff run. Well, switching up to my our home state, Toledo struggled down 28 to 10 against UMass, but rebounded to win 51 to 35 to keep their power or their New Year's Six bowl bid alive. But I still think those three teams in the American control their own destiny because they'll play each other. Toledo's not going to have the same quality competition if they're undefeated. So they're going to have to hope for some chaos in the American in order to get it. But hey, Ohio team, I'm pulling for them. Hope it works out. Speaking of another Ohio team, I don't know if you heard, Bob, but Ohio State's still number one. And they looked very impressive. I know it was against Rutgers, but they haven't looked impressive against bad teams before. JT Barrett got the start. This is two weeks in a row now Ohio State has put the hammer down to teams. Last week against a Penn State team that is now 6-2. and two. Don't sleep on them. I've said it last week. Don't sleep on the Nitty Lions being a spoiler for one of those two Michigan teams. I think that they are going to surprise people and win 10 games. I don't know which one they're going to upset, but I think they're going to upset one, and I think they're going to be sitting at 10-2 and two when this year is over. So that could be a surprise quality win for Ohio State. But last two weeks, it looks like the Buckeyes have started to figure things out, and that's got to worry some people because they, going into the year, they had, I believe, the most talent of any team heading into this season. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. They certainly were in that upper tier as of the most talented, and they're certainly the most experienced for sure. Uh, I think it was the right move to move to JT Barrett for the Buckeyes. Cardell Jones had every opportunity and seemed to just throw it away literally each game <laughs> to the other opponent. Uh, I do wonder, though, just in terms of the long term, Cardell Jones did have the reputation of the big play, and I don't know if JT Barrett has the arm and that kind of pocket presence to make those big third and long conversions that brought Ohio state from big 10 championship game all the way to a, to a national title. So that will be interesting. Cause I do think you, you lose some downfield passing with Barrett, but you certainly gain some leadership, some reliability and added wrinkles in your option game. So I think it's a, a probably an equal trade-off, but I think in the, in the closer games you might, want that that vintage Cardale Jones that I think that's why Urban Meyer gave him so many chances because you do get a little bit more with Jones than Barrett yeah I think Cardale Jones has more NFL attributes than JT Barrett but let's also not forget JT Barrett set an Ohio State record for passing touchdowns last year in only in 11 in, in 11 games he set broke Troy Smith's record in 11 games and then played for about three quarters against the Michigan so JT Barrett had a very excellent season last year probably would have been a Heisman finalist had he not gotten injured had he played the Big Ten title game so Barrett was fantastic last year I do agree Jones has a bigger arm than Barrett but I do think Barrett can make some of those plays and I do think that Barrett is a very very talented quarterback so I don't I don't think they lose too much but with the way Cardell Jones was playing, as you said, he was given every opportunity to win this job, every opportunity to step up and be the man, and he just didn't do it. I mean, he just it just wasn't there. Whatever he had during that run was gone. It's probably the coach, their quarterback, their their the coordinators in Houston now had a lot to do with that too. And his name is escaping me, but yeah, I think that Ohio State 
with Barrett under center, with the way they've looked at Penn State, they're going into a bye week. I think that they're starting to turn it on at the right time. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Tom Herman is the guy you're looking for. He's in Houston now. Thank you. Thank you. I should have known that. I apologize, Tom. My fault. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, we have crammed a ton into this podcast. A lot of good World Series talk. More college football jam-packed into this thing. So, had a lot to talk about. We got to it all. Unfortunately, our time is up. We will be back next week with more What are you talking about? Thank you for listening. Please come to FinleyRoadSports.com. Check out some blog posts. We've got some good ones up there and some more on the way. Follow us on Twitter, FinleyRDSports. Instagram, FinleyROADSports. And subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Give us a good rating, of course, if you enjoy what you're listening. But until next time, talk to you later. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take care, Bob.